Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. Today, we are speaking with my colleague, Keith Britton. He is a managing director on our secondaries team. Keith is also a member of our investment committee, and he has been with the firm for over 12 years now. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks, Katie. Glad to have you. For those listening in, secondary private equity, also known as secondaries, we'll refer to that, has really become a more mature asset class over the last decade or so. And the secondary market today provides liquidity to private equity fund investors, but it also provides an ability to liquidate equity stakes in private companies. Keith, as you know, the secondary market, while mature today, has certainly been evolving for the last two decades. Can you give the audience a little background and perspective on what led you into a career into this space and what your role really entails here at the firm? Sure. So it was really by luck in a way. Uh, I joined in 2010. Prior to that, I spent 10 years in investment banking selling companies for private equity firms. And as I networked my way into Hamilton Lane through Helgerson, I was introduced to Tom Carr. Tom and I met and we had a frank conversation. In that conversation, I told him I had no idea what a secondary was, except for the stuff I read prior to coming in, right? And at that point in time in 2010, there was really no press around secondaries. It was really small in the industry and as an asset class. But as we, we began talking, there was some overlap between what I'd done previously in terms of valuing companies, in terms of structuring transactions, negotiating transactions. And we both decided to take a risk on each other. And here we are 12 years later. And it was, when you think back to 2010, um, coming out of the GFC, or I guess you were still sort of in a downward period, but you had essentially $10 billion of secondary volume. Compare that to over $100 billion today. So it was super small industry. People used the secondary market back then when they were distressed. And that is basically how you use the secondary market. And then as we were coming out in 2010, 2011, you tended to see pension plans and other organizations massively overallocated the private equity because they had very thin bands of targets for their private equity allocations. That created a wave of secondary selling in 2011, 2012. And if you remember back then, the government was also um, doing stress tests at banks. The conclusion of that was basically banks could no longer own commitments to private equity firms. It was called the Volcker Rule. It's actually a funny story. In our New York office, um, Paul Volcker used to have an office down the hallway from our office. And I remember passing him in the hallway one, one day. He did not look at me at all. But as we crossed each other, rather than saying hi, I just said thanks. Right? It was a tremendous boom. His, his role was a tremendous boom in volume because banks had to sell their commitments. And so that, that started, that created more, more volume. And then as time went on, more and more LPs saw that occurring and realized they too can use the secondary market to their benefit. So a lot has changed since 2010. I think we, we often joke there was probably five of us on the secondary team back in 2010. We had just raised a $600 million fund, fund two. And I don't know if there was a pecking order in terms of investment team, right? But I, I would, I would uh, be safe to say we were probably on the bottom of the pecking order, right? <laughs> right? GPs didn't want to talk to us. LPs didn't want to talk to us. No one knew what a secondary was. Fast forward to today, and it's a much different environment. Yeah, the team has certainly grown, and it's it's been a really exciting area. I think even this week we heard the largest ever secondary fund was announced. It's pretty incredible these For sure. days. So back in the summer, you also recorded an excellent webinar on trends and opportunities in the secondary market, and that's on our website for those who are interested. 
And it was really just scratching the surface um, on what today looks like a tremendous opportunity for 2023, right? And I kind of want to pick up where that video left off because it was six months ago, which in secondary time feels long, right? A long time ago. And we now have a full year picture. You've been on the front line of all that, you know, and despite what we've heard is a lot of supply, not a lot of deals have gotten done. Maybe that's anecdotal. But could you give us your perspective on, on what Hamilton Lane saw during the last six months and some of the key themes we saw coming out of the 2022 data? Sure. So some of the, the, one of the biggest themes is around pricing. When you rewind to 2021, pricing on the secondary market was fairly high. It was probably at or near an all-time high. To buy a four-year, five-year-old vintage um, buyout fund, for example, that those were pricing close to par. When 2020 hit and as 2020 progressed, more volatility under the market, more macro uncertainty under the market, distributions weren't as robust, NAVs were not being written up. And so buyers, us and, and the industry basically placed a risk premium in their secondary underwriting. And what you saw is pricing get much better from a secondary buyer's perspective. So take that same fund that you could have bought last year in 2021 for near par, you're probably buying that for 80 cents, 85 cents, 87 cents at a much better discount. That has been a theme for sure. A second big theme sort of revolves around volume, and it is the undercapitalized industry that we're in right now. So you're right, last year or 2021 or 2022, we saw over $250 billion of secondary transactions and the industry closed about $100 billion. So there is a massive undercapitalization. Now, certainly there's reasons why a lot of those deals didn't close. But if you look at the unfunded ratio to deal volume, it is the lowest today for as way back as I can remember. It is around one times today. Even a few years ago, it was over two times. So you have such a wave of volume of selling among LPs, among GPs. Not a lot of secondary capital has been raised to keep up with that growth. Mm-hmm. That creates a massive opportunity. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the private markets hitting $10 trillion in AUM and, you know, the public markets operate with a huge, I think the secondary market in public is, is that's the market, right? For sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's not unrealistic that, that this would, you know, kind of be an area that needs to grow. And really within that, the capital is held with a very small and concentrated group of folks, right? Like there's a few mid-market and large cap firms. Um, some of them kind of, like I said, rivaling the mega buyout funds today in terms of size. But what do you see as the evolution of this group of folks who are raising the capital to, to, to pull here? I think there's been a lot of talk around new entrants coming into the secondary market. We just haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I think there are inherent barriers to entry. If you don't have information, for example, how are you going to price private assets? I do think there's also a talent shortage, right? New new organizations, they want to they be on the buy side of secondaries, but there's not a lot of secondary professionals who have been around long enough to sort of drive that. That's interesting. And you would think this would, there would be a wave of folks like yourself who, you know, 10 years later have heard so much about it. There's so much capital formation. There's so much interest that hopefully it sparks that eventually. It's just going to take time, I guess, to work into the fundraising dollars. I think that's right. And, and what about the LPs? I mean, what, what have we seen? You know, LPs obviously are capital constrained today. Do we expect to see them continue to allocate to this, this strategy, especially in 2023? You have, I think anytime there is an undercapitalized segment within private markets, GPs have done a very good job of raising capital over the years to take advantage of that. 
There are a lot of secondary funds out there fundraising, us included. The undercapitalization is is real. And my impression is LPs generally like the story of secondaries in any cycle. They feel generally, again, that, that now is a good time to lean in more to secondaries given the dislocation, given the better pricing, given the growth potential, and given the undercapitalization. So it does feel like LPs like the story of secondaries and will continue to like that story of secondaries. Right. And it's hard, though, to determine, you know, because you typically see an LP pick one or two groups, unlike in their private equity portfolio, where they might pick a lot more than that in any given year. So they tend to have their relationships and kind of maybe follow on with those relationships for several cycles before maybe adding a different or a secondary strategy. We spoke to an LP yesterday who has a 10% allocation to secondaries. They want to raise that maybe up to 40%. Wow. So there is yeah. that growth. There is the, um, the opportunity set that's happening out there. Yeah, fantastic. Well, before I want to dive into the, the different sort of deal structures. So before we do that, maybe you could explain from your perspective to the audience, you know, what are the different types of deals that an investor in the secondaries market can pursue? We break it down in three types of deals. One, LP interest deals, where you become a replacement limited partner in, in a fund. Two is a GP-led secondary transaction where uh, a GP works with the secondary buyer to create a solution, basically create a vehicle to buy an asset or assets from an old fund. The third type is what we call complex, and that is sort of everything else. It's preferred equity, it's team spin-outs, it's carve-outs, it's secondary directs. Most of the industry sort of lumps the GP-led with the complex in one. So as you break down the volume, about half of the volume today is in LP interest deals and half of the volume is in GP-led and complex secondaries. Wow. Good (laughs) 50-50. What's interesting about that, if you look back at 2021, for example, the deal volume that got closed in the GP-led category was bigger than the entire secondary market was just four years ago. So it gives you a sense for how much the industry has grown. I keep saying wow, because I think you're like, blowing us away here with some stats. Um, the LP secondary market, though, is its core. You mentioned it earlier as sort of being the genesis for what today is, is a big strategy. Is this type of market environment better suited for those LP-led transactions, just given the public market volatility? You've got to be careful in any environment. I would say what is driving LPs to sell today is more the over-allocation issue. Today, compared to coming out of the GFC, however, LPs have become, and, and smartly so, they have increased their allocation bands to, to asset classes. So some LPs are way above their private equity targets, even though the, those targets today are much wider. So that is forcing some LPs to sell. Like what you saw back in 2021 and beyond was just portfolio management. Given where pricing is today, which is, you know, call it a, a much bigger discount, you tend to see LPs selling because they have to or need to rather than portfolio management. So it is, um, it's a good time to be a buyer because discounts have widened and you can be much more selective over the types of funds you want to buy into. I see. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So a lot of the LPs that are transacting today sort of have the, you know, the gun to the head almost, maybe not quite that extreme. But and I'll make up the stat, like a huge majority of LPs have never undergone a process of selling. So do we expect this to kind of continue with newer groups doing this? And 
maybe a second part to that question is what does this process look like? If I'm, if I'm an LP looking, how do I even get started thinking about going through this process? What we saw last year was of all the LPs that sold, about half of them were first-time sellers. That is phenomenal, right? It, it just gives you a sense for how, how new in the grand scheme of things this industry is. If you are a first-time seller, there are you can hire an investment banker or a broker right, to sell your LP interest, or chances are good, um, someone our, on our team or someone at another firm has called you to, to source a secondary. So there is a, a high chance that um, you are sort of aware of what to do because either bankers or buyers are calling on you. Uh, the question is, who do you go with and do you hire, do you hire someone to sell your interest or you just go direct with, with a buyer like us? So there's, there are things to consider for sure, but the, the, the industry is becoming mature enough that at least you have options now in terms of what you want to do. But what are buyers looking for if I'm selling? Are they looking for more buyout today? Are we waiting for the 1231 stats? Like, What is a buyer looking for from a, a, a seller, an LP seller today? We're all deal junkies, right? For sure. So we're looking to find um, the best risk-returning funds that we can buy. W- what we're looking for is timing is less relevant to the buyer. We can transact at any time. There, there are some timing concerns sellers may have. You tend to see sellers, right? Because LP interest trade at quarter end, you, you tend to see more volume near quarter ends, particularly in direct dialogues with the hope of getting a transaction closed by then. What we have seen historically is Back in 2010, 12, 14, the first quarter was pretty light in deal volume. To your point, most LPs were waiting for 1231s to come out before they sort of All transacted. financials, those kind of things, yeah. And then as the market matured, and think, think back over the past three, four years, maybe it's a result of bankers and brokers, maybe it's a result of other things, but the market volume has become less cyclical. LPs found reasons to bring the market portfolios in January and February because those times there was less traffic, there was less volume out there, and their belief was they would get more attention from buyers if they sold in February mm-hmm. versus November or December when the market's super busy. Interesting. So liquidity is expensive, but maybe try go for it now. <laughs> it's like going on vacation in January rather than at spring break. Exactly. You, know, you never know. <laughs> you never know. So I do want to talk about the, the pricing environment today. Historically speaking, buyers of secondaries who have priced off of very high valuations over the last few years, how do you think they're feeling about their portfolios today? <laughs> Loaded question. I am sure it varies by organization. I think the other part of that question is some of our peers have used, used leverage to mm-hmm. buy portfolios of LP interests when NAVs are declining or flat, when distributions are slowing, and that interest rate is ticking on and, and going up. Uh, it becomes more painful for organizations like that. So I, I do think uh, it's still early, of course, but I do think that that the uh, the sleepless nights kind of vary across organization and funds. Interesting, because all I see is people telling me it's up and to the right. It's great, everything's <laughs> fine. So if we do talk about discount ranges, because everyone listening to this is going to want to know what you think about discount range, ranges. We'll take us through some of you know the pricing today. And I, I assume we're obviously still pricing off of 930, 630, 930. We are. Right. So what are, what are some of the expectations in the buyout growth and, and venture world to start? I'll start with venture. Um, very few venture funds were sold in the back half of 2022. The perception, rightly or wrongly, and again, there's some exceptions, right? But the perception is 
and the reality is a lot of the venture managers are carrying their assets at rounds that were raised in 2020 and 2021. Secondary market buyers view them as largely you know, overvalued, and so you have to compensate that for the discount, or at least there's more duration, and it's going to take time for managers to grow into those valuations, which is just, again, more duration, lower price. We saw pricing and venture range from people just wouldn't touch certain funds to 50 cents to 60 cents maybe. And that price is just way too low for LPs to take to their board to get approval to sell. So very little venture funds traded. Growth equity was a mixed bag. It was sort of the same dynamic as venture. You saw a lot of growth equity funds invest in companies in 2020, 2021, carry those investments at those rounds, which again, may or may not be overvalued. Other growth equity managers had more conservative approaches to valuation and maybe didn't carry them as high as other managers in the same asset. So you might be able to get value arbitrage there. So we saw growth equity funds, again, trade from or price from 40 cents to 50 cents to 70 cents, maybe 80 cents. So you did see a little more growth equity funds trade, but not, not many. Mm-hmm. The bulk of what traded was buyout funds. And again, they ranged, some of those funds were pricing at 50 cents, some of those price at 90, 95 cents. It really ranged, but I would say on average, pricing is down 10 to 20% from where it was a year ago. Okay. I guess information advantage is key there as well. Funds that you probably know better than others. Yes. So if we if we think about maybe the inflation-linked strategies, right? The credit, um, real assets, energy, those things. Have, have those funds traded as well? And what are sort of some of the average discount rates? I thought I heard some of the real asset ones were trading closer to Figures that we hadn't seen before. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, we we have seen some real estate funds trade in the '90s. Yeah, which has been tremendous. Yeah, you know, there there are buyers of real asset infrastructure funds. There are buyers of of credit funds. They tend to be dedicated funds raised for those strategies, and they tend to be SMAs. And so the cost of capital there may be different than what a a secondary fund cost of capital is. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Interesting. So let's dive into the topic on GP LEDs. I feel like anyone listening to this probably would fast forward to this section anyway. It's all anyone wants to talk about. Everyone calls and says, you know, I want an, a GP-led only fund, right? Right, <laughs> it that's right. seems to be the flavor du jour. You know, I think the first question I have is really, how do you think about a GP-led only strategy? And is this sort of a, a diver- like a benefit to a diversified portfolio or, or is it good to have it as a standalone strategy? There are some funds that were raised just to do GP-led transactions and just to do single asset deals within GP-led transactions. So that those types of funds, for example, may invest in 10, 15, 20 single asset deals, almost like a co-investment fund. And so it is a much different, a fund with that profile is a much different risk perspective and a profile perspective than a secondary fund that invests in LP interest only, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's strategies all in between. I think the way the way that we look at it is that adding both LP interest and GP-led transactions into one fund can provide nice diversification benefits. And it also allows you the flexibility to toggle into and out of LP deals or GP deals, whatever the market gives you. So if you look today at buying an LP interest in a fund at a price of 80 cents and compare that to a GP-led deal where all GPs want to take a price of par to their LPs with no discount, we're seeing much more, many more opportunities in the LP interest market today that are attractive than we are on the GP-led 
market. Two years ago, it was it was the opposite. Yeah. And that may change two years from now. So having both types of transactions and being able to do both gives you the benefit and it doesn't force you just to do every deal in the GP-led market that comes across your desk because you have to. That's interesting. I'm curious to dive into that. Like, Why is that that the GP-leds in terms of, you know, the best things we're seeing, like, is it because the trophy assets have already traded or is it most of what we're seeing are, are the stressed assets now? Like, what is what is driving that? It's a combination. I would say the general premise is you have general partners when they, when they want to do a GP-led deal, their ask normally is par or something else. Mm. And the valuations of private markets haven't come down, right? And so it is hard in a lot of cases for secondary buyers to get comfortable with the price of par. There are certain situations where you can, but there's a lot of macro risks. There's a lot of valuation risks. If the GP marked up their asset tremendously, and if alignment is bad and the, the reasons for doing a GP-led aren't quite there, then that might create a deal that gets shelved. So there's a lot of things that go into that, and it varies by time. Are we seeing more GPs, similarly to the LP side, that maybe hadn't done one before? This is sort of their first toehold into, into the GP-led market? We have. Uh, yeah. We have. Yes. We looked at some of the GP-led deals that were launched in March through August of last year. Mm-hmm. And there were 50 transactions launched. 25 of them have been pulled. 11 of them are still in sort of in flux, right? They might get pulled. They're going through iteration two or three of that GP-led and may never get done. So it gives you a sense for the deal failure rate in the GP market today. And, and a lot of those were either price or quality. So Keith, if I put my LP hat on here, we instinctively don't like to do more work than we have to do. We don't like complexity. We don't necessarily have the teams to be able to evaluate these deals that come to us from our GP partners. But there are considerations for you know both selling and rolling over. How do we think about LPs kind of rolling into these, I don't know if they're trophy assets or whatever, just new structures? What is our general advice to LPs who have to kind of make a quick decision in a tough market? It is a quick decision. Usually it's a 20-day decision. What we have seen in GP-led deals is 80% usually sell into the transaction. And there's a lot of reasons for that. For most LPs, it is a new investment decision. And you have to take it to your committee. You have to get approval. You have to do the work to do that. And a lot of LPs just aren't staffed to do so. So it becomes very difficult to roll into a transaction. And on the flip, uh, the other point is that many of these deals, what we have found is these GP-led deals are some of the best performing assets in the fund. And when you look at the returns those deals have made, on average, they're better than the returns the fund has made. So for that reason, LPs just want to de-risk and take liquidity because it's an option and the funds have performed very well and the returns so far have been been very good. So interesting because, you know, you'd rather have your GP maybe instead of selling to the next sponsor, because I feel like the LP always used to <laughs> slap us on the wrist for that, right? You think it would make sense for wanting the GP to, who know the asset so well, like the asset, and probably can make a lot of money with it, that you'd want them to continue on with it. But, you know, to your point, it's, yeah. it's, a, long, uh, it's a long life. <laughs> and you have a buyer, and most buyers are credible, they yeah. see value in that asset too, and they're making yeah. an investment decision. 
Um, so you're right. You, you would you would think that more LPs, maybe over time that happens, more right. LPs sell sell less. Yeah, that's interesting. I have one more question in this area, just because it's come up a lot. But venture capital funds embracing GP led deals. What's your thought on that? There's been many that that have, and we have done some. There's some very good managers out there. I, I would say the reasons they would do a GP led are the same reasons a growth equity manager would, same reasons a buyout manager would. Largely, it's given LPs an option, the option for liquidity, and to manage assets that were constrained by a 10-year fund life. So we do look at, at some of those as well? And we do, and we have yeah, done some. That's great. That's great. So as we wrap up here, a few, few last questions just on the opportunity set in front of us in, in 2023. What is your expectation for you know, contribution pacing and, um, and distributions even in 2023? What is our expectation for this being sort of an area that um, we'll see more activity than 2022, do you think? Or? I think 2023 volume is up mm-hmm. from 2022. When you look at the volume history, so 2021 was $135 billion of deals, 2022 about 105. And I think 2023 will be up again from 2022. So down in 22, up in 23. The first quarter feels slow, but there's a lot of demand drivers that are going on. You have LPs that need to sell, which we talked about. You have GPs that have assets that are fundraising, GPs are fundraising, they want to show distributions for fundraising. M&A markets aren't great, IPO windows closed, and so GPs keep coming to market with secondary, with GP-led secondaries. So you have a nice demand driver there as well to create liquidity for LPs, to show DPI for fundraising. So the, the reasons for sale haven't changed, they're only getting stronger. And I do think as we enter you know, Q3 and Q4, maybe even Q2, you will tend to see market volume increase. Again, if, if things stay relatively flat from a macro perspective or maybe even feel better, then you can really see a big acceleration of growth. That's great. And what about the split here? I know we talked about 50-50, but do complex transactions take center stage here, do you think, in 2023? We are seeing more. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the, the preferred equities and the yes, team spin yes. Yeah. There, there are a lot of conversations with GPs around different types of transactions. It is unclear how much volume or market share that's going to take, mm-hmm. but there are, are things to do. I would say one of the trends we are seeing across you know, the, the secondary landscape is the tender staple. That has been, it's always been around, right? That is where a GP works with a secondary buyer to price up their fund. The GP then takes that price to all LPs in their fund to, to offer them that price to sell their LP interest. Nothing about the fund changes, LPA, economics, they all say the same. And then the buyer will then staple primary commitment into the GP's new fund. So you tend to see GPs doing this, obviously, in fundraising. And it is, is largely a fundraising exercise for GPs. We have seen more of these over the past 12 months than, than we have over the past couple of years. And we're having a number of conversations with GPs around that. Again, unclear how many GPs actually do this, but there are conversations going on around that type of secondary. Interesting. Okay. Tender staple sounds like something staple. you would do to like a steak or something. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any perceived threats to the growth of the secondary market, like the SEC or pullback in fundraising largely? Anything you're worried about? It, it feels like the biggest the biggest threat to just growth would be, again, the, the can fundraising keep up with the opportunity set? Mm-hmm. It, it hasn't been able to so far. And the question is, can it? Can it do that? 
And that will depend on a lot of things. It will depend on the secondary funds and the returns and the opportunity set continuing where it is and the demand drivers translating into actionable secondary deals. But that, that could that could limit limit growth of the opportunity set is is the fundraise aspect. And what about from a return perspective? We talked about this a little earlier, but a lot of things have gone up and to the right lately, right? And um, I know, obviously, we expect secondaries to be a top performing strategy over the next cycle. But any, any, is this an environment where maybe the, the, you know, you can tell the difference between a top performing and a average performing fund? Or are we still on a good ride here for a few more years? Yeah, I, I think over the next five years, things should shake out, right? Yeah. There have been, and we talked about this early on, some secondary funds will put 10 single asset deals into their fund. If some of those single asset deals go wrong, those returns are going to fall fall tremendously. So, and we've been saying this every five-year period, it feels like when we look back five years, there will be a differentiation, a massive differentiation among secondary funds. And, and I, I still believe that in five years, when we look back, you will see some winners and some losers. That's good. Okay. Well, that's what we like to hear. Well, thank you, Keith. This has been great. Thanks for having me. And we'll end there. And I will say to the audience listening, you know, in 2023, don't make secondaries secondary. Thank you for listening in to another episode of Private Markets Made Human. If you want more information, Keith and the team have written plenty of strong recent white papers on these topics. And we welcome you to visit our website or stay tuned for our 2023 market overview, where we dive in even further and coming to you in a few short weeks. 